Welcome to Now Appalachian, hosted by author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. This show profiles the authors and publishers that have connections to the Appalachian region and how those connections influence and impact their works. And now, Appalachian. And hello, friends, and we welcome you once again to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network as we continue to profile the outstanding authors from the Appalachian region, and this Appalachian region that covers 13 different states all up and down the east coast of the United States, and it is home to some of the most dynamic, most interesting, and most diverse writers that are producing some outstanding work and outstanding quality literature uh, in the country today. And we have another one of those writers with us today to talk to us about her new book, and it is an outstanding book that you need to really add to your to-be-read pile. It's called The Other Morgans, and our guest is Carter Taylor Seaton today. And Carter joins us. She is a freelance journalist, a novelist, and also a figurative sculptor. She was born and raised in West Virginia. She graduated from Marshall University, and she's also lived in Columbus and Atlanta, Georgia, uh, over her career and over her life. Her first novel, Father's Troubles, was named a finalist for the prestigious Forward Magazine 2003 Book of the Year Award in the historical fiction category. Her second novel, Amoa Masa Moth, an unconventional love story, was selected as Indie Reader Approved with a 4.5 star rating during their Discovery Awards competition. Her third book, Hippie Homesteaders, Arts, Crafts, Music, and Living on the Land in West Virginia, was released by West Virginia University Press in 2014. And she also is a biographer and did a biography of the late U.S. Congressman Ken Heckler titled The Rebel in the Red Jeep, which was published by WVU Press in 2017. And it was chosen as a finalist for the Weatherford Award and as a category finalist in biography by Forward Indie Reviews. And it also won the Ella Dickey Literary Award in 2018. And she joins us today with her new book, The Other Morgans, and she also co-authored another book with her husband, Richard Cobb, which we're going to talk about as well today. So Carter, uh, welcome to Now Appalachia. It's so exciting to have you here. So glad to have you here. Been wanting to have you here for a long time, and I'm glad to have you on the program. So welcome. Thank you so much, Elliot. It's a real privilege to be here, and I'm delighted to talk with you once again. I loved this book for so many reasons, and I know that you and I have talked off and on over the last couple of years about this project. As you were thinking about it, as you were working on the draft, as you were thinking about direction and, and point of view and all the things that writers deal with when they're putting a novel together. Um, but I know this, this, this concept about the other Morgans and your character, AJ, who we'll talk about here in just a minute, had been kind of on your conscious and on your thinking for a long time when you sat down to think about uh, the next novel that you were going to take on. So what was it about that, that this idea, this concept of what goes on in the other Morgans that kind of stuck in your mind and you just couldn't shake it off as you were thinking about uh, making it into a novel? Well, I think there were really two things. One, it was partially inspired by a visit I made to a historic home that's been in my family for 10 generations over near Charlottesville. And when I went to that house and heard some of the tales that um, came from the person who then owned it uh, about the different generations who lived there, I kept thinking about, wow, what a story this house could tell. And I wanted somehow to focus on those generational stories that every family probably has. The second thing was the concept of home. 
that strikes a, such a chord in most Appalachians. Um, my aunt used to say jokingly, but not so jokingly, that all West Virginians knew where they planned to be buried. And it was always <laughs> back in West Virginia, whether they were living there or not. And I think the idea of home is so central to everybody. Um, you know, it's, it's the underlying theme of The Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home. And um, it's, it's our internal geography. So what happens to somebody, A.J. Porter, when she has to make a decision whether to embrace a different life than she's known altogether and move to a home that has those generational ties that she was unaware of or make the decision to stay in her native West Virginia. And I think that's a choice that a whole lot of people who grow up in West Virginia and maybe can't find jobs here have to make. Uh, it's a little different than the one she has to make, but it is central to a lot of uh, our lives. I mean, and I, I, in particular, for instance, uh, I left West Virginia and was in Georgia for 10 years, and West Virginia drew me back home. Yeah, I was going to ask you, that was going to be my, my, my next question. I was going to ask you about, you know, you experienced that personally because you, you left West Virginia and, and lived in Georgia uh, for about 10 years, uh, you know, obviously for work and for other opportunities, but uh, we're able to come back here or come back to Appalachia, come back to West Virginia uh, at that, at that particular time. So in a lot of ways, like AJ, you, you had that, had to make that decision personally, um, but then we're able to come back where you really wanted to be. Right. And uh, not to give away the end for, for AJ, but I think that is something that, um, you know, we, we all contemplate. And when we're gone, we sometimes remember what it was about West Virginia and Appalachia that we loved, that was so deeply rooted in us. Uh, we may leave for what we think are greener pastures, but then when we get there, you know, the grass isn't always greener on that side. And there's one quote that uh, I highlighted in your book, and, and this ties in exactly to what you've been talking about, about AJ and, and the idea of, of what she's kind of dealing with, with this decision that she has to make. Um, and, and you write that her family and that mountain had overshadowed her entire unremarkable life. It wasn't that she didn't love both, or for that matter, every inch of her farm in Gimlet Hollow. She did deeply, but as she stood, letter in hand, she allowed herself to dream. Yeah. So, so can you tell us a little bit about what, what when she's got that letter in her hand, because that's such a seminal moment in the story, what she starts thinking about, and what is it ultimately that kind of propels her to make the final decision that she chooses? Well, she had always wanted something more, <clears throat> and because of the circumstances of her life, she wasn't able to complete college and had to go back to living on a very poor dirt farm in order to maintain that farm and a life for her mother and her daughter. And um, yet she's always wanted something more. She just wasn't quite sure what more meant, um, particularly after having lost the opportunity to go to college and explore that. So when she's given this opportunity, she does, that dream begins to creep back into her 
conscious mind and she thinks, well, maybe this is the more that I've always wanted. And um, it, it affords her the opportunity to, to leave and make a choice to live an entirely different life and um, decide whether to uproot her mother and her daughter and leave this dirt poor farm and go live someplace that's completely different from what she's ever known and it makes her a very wealthy woman and that is a dream that you know we all anybody who plays the lottery has you know <laughs> these days will you know when i win the lottery i'm going to such and such and and she makes a joke about that she says it's you know she plays the lottery with no hope of ever winning but maybe this is the lottery and she's won it without knowing that so she's getting ready to step into kind of this the, the, this other life outside of Gimlet Hollow, and she does have the promise of a lot of money waiting for her should she take this decision. But what kind of because um, your book is so much about setting, and, and you've talked about this home and place, and what does it mean to be home, and what is it to plant roots somewhere? Um, what is it from a setting perspective that she's walking into? So we, you do such a great job of building up Gimlet Hollow, and it's a place that a lot of folks from Appalachia can identify with in some way, either from personal experience or having family members that have grown up in that environment or know of friends that have grown up in that environment. But she's walking into a totally different setting. So money aside, what is it that if she, when she makes this decision, what is she walking into in terms of a totally different setting and experience? She's walking into a, an estate of thousands of acres that's an operating conglomerate farm that provides exports of soybeans and wheat and all sorts of things and a home, a home that is, um, in her eyes, as large as the Greenbrier Resort. It's not quite, but it is pretty fine and it is almost a house museum. And it stretches back to the period where Thomas Jefferson played the piano and played the violin in this home for dances, that there are, um, you know, ties to past presidents. I mean, it is, it is an entirely, I mean, it, just imagine the polar opposite of Gimlet Hollow, and that's what she walks into, and she's going to be the mistress of the whole thing. It's a home called Langford Hall, where she doesn't even realize that that can be the name of a home. She thinks that's like a hotel or a castle or something. And it is castle-like in a way. It's uh, multiple stories. It's got antiques galore that stretch back to the 1700s. Uh, it's got a family graveyard out back where all of these people are buried and the stories that go with them. And it's a society that, um, in some respects, and with some people, ascribed to the trope of West Virginia as being a non-state with, you know, hillbillies and, you know, mountain shine, moonshine. And she runs into that and uh, it infuriates her. And, um, you know, there's that t-shirt that says West Virginia a state since 1863. Well, these people, you know, you pull out that joke, you know, oh, I have a cousin, or that line, I have a cousin in Roanoke. <laughs> and she you know, reacts she reacts badly to it but that's the kind of um life she walks into and while she is a simple girl um she's also a very feisty 
independent, smart woman. And she grows into the role quite nicely and makes pretty informed and tough decisions while she is living there for that period of time that she has to, to decide whether or not to keep it. And you mentioned that she takes on the title of mistress of that estate. What does that mean exactly? It means that she learns everything about how the farm runs. It means she is the boss of the people who work there, including a crop manager named Hank and the business manager named Tom Beckett. And um, some of those, and, and Santos, the stable master, and, you know, Eddie, the gardener, and Isabel, the secretary, and a number of other people who work there on the, on the estate. I mean, she finds that, you know, she's got a whole uh, cadre of staff. And then she's never had that. She's worked the farm herself. So it's a situation where she's really thrown into a role that she's not aware. You know, she, she's, she's prepared to try and take on, but it, she, there is a learning curve to learning how to do what she has to do. And um, it's fortunate that she's managed her own farm because then that gives her at least some background to do it on a grander, much grander scale. But she runs into some difficulties and she has to make tough decisions and, um, and that, that further strengthens her to make the ultimate decision at the end as to whether or not to go or stay. And one of the nice twists that you add to the story is, is everything that AJ is facing. And as you mentioned, not only having to change her total setting, cross state lines, but step into this world that she knows very little about. You've kind of given her a time limit. She has one year to decide. Right. Um, and, and that's really interesting. And I, and I loved how you put that in there because that creates a lot more urgency too. You know, she, she's not going to have two or three years to kind of wade through this and figure out, is this what she likes to do? She's got 12 months to figure it out. It's and the I, ticking clock. It is the ticking clock. And, and I, I wondered about that as, as a stylistic device as a writer, if you had set out to put that one year timeline in originally, or if that was something that uh, came along later on. When did you make that? Cause that decision, you know, I think I'm, it's such I a great decision pretty early on because, um, you know, it's easy to it is it's easy to create events for a shorter period of time, and it also made it more tense because she does have only that period of time in which to work. If I strung it out over five years, you would expect almost anybody to be able to figure it out in five years. But one year for somebody who's facing the complete unknown makes it even more tense. Yeah, very good. Carter Taylor Seaton is our guest here today on Now Appalachia. We're talking to her about her latest book, The Other Morgans. She is an award-winning author and award-winning uh, freelance journalist um, who has done so much uh, in her career, both fiction and nonfiction. And in addition to The Other Morgans, you have another book uh, that is coming out almost at the same time that this one will release in mid-October of 2020. So this is a project that you teamed up with with your husband Richard Cobb and kind of took us on a literal backstage behind the scenes experience into concert planning and meeting celebrities. Tell us a little bit about your book and what it's about and what was it like working with your husband on this project? Well it's called We Were Legends in Our Own Minds and it 
came about because all through the years that I've known Richard and been married to him, he used to tell me these wild stories about the adventures he had with people like Elvis and Ozzy Osbourne and ZZ Top and Sly and the Family Stone and all this kind of thing. And every time he'd tell them in a group of people, they were just, they were just mesmerized by them. And for years, I said to Richard, you, you've got to let me tell these stories. You've got to let me write these stories down. And he would always say, no, nobody would care about that. Nobody wants to read about that stuff. Well, <clears throat> here we are going on about 60 years of all these acts still out there on the road, or many of them anyway. <clears throat> Some of them doing their, their fourth or fifth free, <laughs> you know, final tour. And some of them are still performing and have no plans to quit like the Rolling Stones. And finally, I said, Richard, come on, this has got to be done. We've got to get these stories down. And he said, well, what would you call this book? And I said, well, let me think about it a minute. And all of a sudden, I came up with We Were Legends in Our Own Minds, because that so fits both the acts and Richard in many, many ways, because he was always a dreamer. He, he ran these convention centers and civic arenas for 25 years. And he always kind of led with his dreams and his chin, hoping that things were going to be as great as they were when he was in Charleston, West Virginia. And the, the rock bands really were, they were coming to Charleston two and three nights a week. And ticket prices were five to seven dollars. You could not possibly have failed if you tried there. And he always wanted to kind of replicate that in the other arenas that he was in. And it didn't always work out to his advantage. And so in a sense, he kind of became a legend in his own mind that he kept thinking he could do this over and over again. And it didn't always work. So I got him to finally sit down and tell me, of course, I, I knew most of the stories because he would told them to me in the past. And, um, as we get older, of course, our memories are not as good. And um, sometimes I'd have to remind him of what he told me because it wasn't always the same when he told it to me the last time. So we sat down and he would tell me a story and I'd write a chapter and then I'd read it back to him and I'd say, okay, is this right? Is this what you mean? And he would add something to it or he would say, no, no, it wasn't that way. It was so-and-so else. So we collaborated fully on the whole book. Uh, and we got a lot of help from people that he had worked with. Uh, one of the best helps we had, and I'm sorry that he is now deceased and won't be able to read it, but the concert promoter, Gary Lashinsky, was the beginning contact that Richard had at the Charleston Civic Center. And he sent us, before he died, a printout of every single concert he'd ever promoted in his life. So we were able to pinpoint all of the dates of these concerts that Richard was talking about and uh, most of which Gary and his brother Phil had promoted. We also spent a lot of time at the West Virginia archives finding newspaper clippings and many of those cases, back then they, they reported on every single concert that came along, corroborated these crazy details that, that Richard had told me. <laughs> you know, I mean, some of them you wouldn't believe unless you had that corroboration. Like for instance, the woman who asked to have Rose cleared at the Charleston Civic Center so that she could bring her daughter in an iron lung to hear Elvis. And yeah. I, he told me that and I said, come on, that's not true. That can't be true. And we looked it up in the newspaper and by golly, he was right. 
Yeah. It, it is a wonderful collection of just, as you said, funny, humorous, uh, just unbelievable stories that, as you said, are all true. And what I loved about it too, in, in reading it, and, I, and I've, I've seen you and heard you read parts of it in draft form, is that it's so interesting to hear these stories because this, this is a pre-9-11 environment where guests could get up, could get up close to the performers and performers could get up close to the guests and the, you know, Richard and his staff could get right up next to Ozzy Osbourne and actually touch him and shake his hand. You know, now you couldn't do that hardly anymore. Um, so it's fascinating to see how close and intimate people could get uh, uh, under these circumstances. And it, it's a terrific book. And I'm so glad uh, that you did it, that you and Richard wrote that. And it, it's really good. Uh, everybody should read it. If you're a fan of concerts and performances and you've been to a lot of those over your life. Uh, you, you well, I think really people who, who attended those concerts in the 70s and early 80s, you know, it's the nostalgia feel that, that you know, if you were in that audience, you never knew all of the machinations that went on behind the scenes to get that group on that stage, off that stage, and back in their van going home. Yeah, it's terrific. Yeah, and you learn all of that too uh, in, in reading the book. So it, it's fantastic, and I hope folks will add that as well to their to be read pile. And Carter, I wanted to ask you something, because I know you are a big proponent. We get questions about this from time to time off the air from listeners about writing conferences and workshops. And I know you're, you're a big proponent of going to those and attending those. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, as, as an award-winning novelist and writer yourself, but also for someone who maybe is in that category or someone who's maybe not got something published yet, but they're working on something or they don't know where to start. And I, I know you've been to, to the Heinemann, um, the Heinemann conference, Heinemann settlement conference uh, at Berea College in Kentucky. I know you've been other places as well. Can you talk about the value of that and, and what you get from that, despite the fact that you published and, and won awards for your works, but what, what you get from it, but what any writer could get from going to either a, a regional writing conference or a national conference? I think anytime you go to a conference, um, there are two things that really stand out. One is, of course, the workshop quality. Uh, particularly Heinemann and the West Virginia Writer Conference and any of those regional conferences that really tend to draw superb writers. There's always something that no matter how many books you have published that you can learn. Um, there's always a, an extra tip or a new way of looking at how to get unstuck from your writing block if you've got it. Um, recently, you know, because of uh, the COVID pandemic, a lot of these people have been doing things online. And I had the opportunity to listen to Anne Lamont the other day for a good afternoon. And it was remarkable, no matter how many books I have written and how many articles I've written, she had some ideas and some tips about how to get through that first draft and how to get into the editing process that were valuable. And even if they only become reminders of what you learned once before, they're valuable. The second thing that's probably as valuable, if not more so, are the connections you make at these conferences. There, there's, you know, we all write in solitude and it's imperative, I think, for everybody to develop writing communities, whether they're right there in your own town or across the internet or across the country in person 
that you see when you go to these conferences. It's, um, you know, it's a tough business and keeping yourself engaged in your writing is, um, I think, enhanced by having other writing partners and other writing friends that are doing the same thing and going through the same issues that you are. Because it always gives you somebody to bounce that problem off of when you've got something that you're stuck on to be able to say, hey guys, I don't know how to get past this. Help me, help me think about how I can do that. Doesn't mean you're gonna use exactly what they tell you, but it means you've got somebody that you can be a that can be a sounding board for you. I, I highly encourage people to go to any conference that they can get to, that they can afford, that they can log on to online. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I know you and I have been to some of those same writing conferences uh, in Appalachia and beyond over the years. And you're exactly right. What you get more out of it than I think even more than you put into it. And I think certainly the more you put into the conferences and attendee, the more you're going to get out of it. But even if you go and just kind of absorb everything and just kind of be a wallflower, you can still walk away with so much more uh, than you had when you walked in. So mm -hmm. I, I'm, I appreciate you sharing that perspective. I know in addition to all of your work as a writer, you're a voracious reader. So I wanted to ask you if you had to pick one and just one, who is the Appalachian writer everybody should be reading right now? Wow. Well, I would say that one of my favorites, and she does have a new book out, um, is Barbara Kingsolver. She, um, she's amazing. She's written fiction and nonfiction. And I heard her speak at Heinemann once, <clears throat> and I loved the way she talked about how she goes about a novel. And that was that she has a theme that she's contemplating, that's something that's bothering her or something that she wants to hone in on. And then she creates a character and a situation that will highlight that. And I think that's, um, that's good advice if you're trying to, you know, it's not didactic. It's not trying to be, to, to, to preach or teach. It's just a way of opening people's eyes to a situation um, that, that exists that she's concerned about. Another one I think that's really um, amazing, two others actually, Ron Rash and Silas House. Um, both of those are incredible writers and um, uh, Ron's book Serena was remarkable and he's got a novella coming out that carries this same character Serena uh, forward so I would recommend those three people. Carter Taylor Seaton is our guest on this episode of Now Appalachia we've been talking to her about her writing career and also her outstanding new book the other Morgans. And so Carter, let's go back to that book for, uh, for just a few minutes. And I know something that, that you were struggling with a little bit in, in putting this draft together is kind of the point of view and, and how did you want to structure AJ and her role in the narrative? Can you talk a little bit about that process and kind of what you went through and, and ultimately how did you decide to tell the story from uh, AJ's perspective and kind of where she's situated in the book? Well, she's obviously the central character. And um, while it's not told in first person, you do see both of her worlds from her perspective. Um, 
I would say that, that Isabel Collins is also a highly important character in this book. And you see <clears throat> the stories of the house, Langford Hall, from her perspective. So it's kind of a bouncing back and forth between those two. But AJ is by far the central character. And I've worked hard to make her um, a character that you could empathize with, that you could uh, put yourself in her position. Um, I did consider in the beginning telling it just from her point of view, but that didn't work because there was no way for her to know the stories of the house. And there's a reason why Isabel's telling them to her because she wants AJ to keep the house. And she's got a reason, a total secret to most, so you get almost to the end of the book, a total secret for why she wants that to happen. So there's a little bit of mystery to it as well. And um, I couldn't have accomplished that if it was all AJ talking, doing it from the first person point of view. Yeah. And something else that you really do, and you, you mentioned Isabel, you were talking about uh, the gardener earlier. Uh, you know, you really give a lot of depth and breadth to your minor characters. And, and even if they're only uh, in for a chapter or so, or maybe they pop up in one chapter and we don't see them again for several more chapters, you really put a lot of, uh, of, of, in, you know, depth and breadth behind them to where, you know, we're almost as interested in their story and kind of what they're up to uh, as we are AJ and her circumstances and her story. And I want to ask you a little bit about that because you've got a lot of characters uh, in this book that all have different reasons for why uh, the house is important to them or why it's meaningful to them or why they feel like it's a part of them uh, personally and professionally. Um, can you talk a little bit about structuring and developing those minor characters so that they uh, also have a significant role to play in the story. Yeah, I, I wanted to think in terms of, you know, when somebody has to make a decision and they ask advice from various people in their families or in their lives, you have to couch their answers with their motive. You know, her boyfriend, Dewey, does not want her to go. Well, it is, that's not good advice because he's thinking of it from a selfish perspective, from why he doesn't want her to go. It's, you know, all about do. He doesn't want her to leave. Um, his or her little girl, Annie, has got the same, same complaints. I don't want mama to go. Her mother says, oh, hell yeah, go, and then sell the house and it'll make us rich, you know. So <laughs> she's got a different perspective. And then when she gets to... Virginia to Langford Hall, um, Isabel has a totally different point of view. And she desperately wants this woman to succeed. And she's kind of like the fairy godmother in a way to pave the way to make it as easy as possible for AJ to succeed, to give advice. And you begin to wonder, does she have a secret motive? You know, and is she the kind of person who is saying all this, but she really has an ulterior motive for keeping AJ there? Uh, and like I said, that is a bit of a mystery, and you begin to wonder what she's up to, because she's so good to her, you know. Um, then she's got a new boyfriend in Virginia, and, you know, he's a pretty open book, so he's you know, you can pretty well tell what his ideas are. He definitely wants AJ in his life, and 
whatever that takes, he's willing to do. So I try to make each character distinctive. You know, there's nothing similar about, let's say, AJ and the boyfriend in Virginia. Um, there's nothing about those two people that are alike. There's nothing about AJ's mother, Alice, and Isabel that, is a, that are alike. Um, and then, of course, you've got the character, Tom Beckett, that she has to deal with. He's an entirely different insular character as well. So I really try to draw each personality clearly enough in their, in their mannerisms, in their attitudes, in their motives, that they do stand alone. Very good. And Kohler Books is the publisher of The Other Morgans. How did you come across them, and what has the relationship been like working with them uh, to help you bring your manuscript to publication? They've been fantastic. I submitted a manuscript to them on a Wednesday, and on Monday they called and offered me a publishing contract. I, I could not be happier. They've been delightful to work with. They had um, a pre-cover reveal contest and put the covers out there, some possible covers, and the one that's on the book was the overwhelming favorite. And I thought that was a brilliant marketing trick. Uh, they've just been fantastic to work with. I had a super editor in um, Joe Caro and John Kohler has been wonderful to work with. I, I can't applaud that publishing firm enough. That's great. So in our final moments with you today, Carter, if anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about the other Morgans, to talk to you about uh, the book that you did with your husband, Richard Cobb, We Are Legends in Our Own Minds, or if they want to uh, ask you any other questions about the Ken Heckler biography, about Amoa Masamad, about Father's Troubles, how can they get in contact with you, first of all? And then where can they get copies of the other Morgans? Okay. Uh, the first, the easiest way to get in touch with me is my email address, which is just my name, Carter Seaton at Comcast.net. It's a simple email. Uh, my website, CarterSeaton.com. You can buy books there, all of my books there, and uh, you'll get a signed copy if you like, and I'll ship it to you. Just fill out the form, pay by PayPal, and you're done. You can also go to the usual suspects, um, you know, bookshop and Amazon and Barnes and Nobles, or, and for the other Morgans, you could go to colabooks.com, and for Legends in Our Own Minds, you can go to mountainstatepress.com. We've been speaking with Carter Taylor Seaton today on this episode of Now Appalachia. Her new novel is out. It is called The Other Morgans as we follow a journey through the character of AJ as she has to make, as she has one year to make a uh, life-altering and possible life-changing decision as she moves away from her farm, as she moves away from West Virginia and Gimlet Hollow in West Virginia, crosses the state lines into Virginia and has a new house, a new estate, and possibly a large sum of money awaiting her. It's a terrific story full of wonderfully rich characters. And as she's talked about uh, throughout this interview, you're not quite always sure what everybody's motivation is when she gets to uh, the hall. And so it's something that you will uh, really enjoy. And I hope you'll, you will add it to your to be red pile and also check out the book that she co-authored with her, her husband, Richard Cobb. We are legends uh, as well, because that is another book that uh, different from the other Morgans, but also a really, really interesting look into concerts and what goes on behind the scenes of those concerts in the 1970s and 1980s. So Carter, congratulations on all the great work that you're doing and congratulations on the other Morgans. And we wish you all the best of luck uh, 
with that book as it going forward. Thank you so much, Elliot. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. We also want to take a moment to say thanks to uh, all of you for listening, most importantly, but we also have an executive producer of Now Appalachia that we need to say a special thanks to. Her name is Pam Stack. Pam is responsible for all the production and all the behind the scenes work that takes place here on Now Appalachia, as well as the other outstanding podcasts that you hear from my colleagues and friends all across the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. So Pam, we appreciate uh, all the work that you do and thank you so much for uh, making sure that these um, podcasts are up and available uh, to audiences all across the world. We have uh, listeners in 14 different countries all throughout the world that check into our podcast each and every episode, and we appreciate uh, the work that you do to make those uh, podcasts possible for those audiences. We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the authors on the air global radio network. That's going to do it for us this time on now Appalachia. Please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay tuned to the authors on the air global radio network for more outstanding podcasts that will be coming your way. And until then I'm Elliot Parker. Stay well and see you someplace soon. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next. Stay tuned for more outstanding podcasts from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.